Before we begin, just a warning. Some listeners may find some of what you're about to hear distressing. Also, there's some strong language. Last time on 17 Years, the Andrew Malkinson story. Grab a few weeks' work, give them their money back and then... Which I almost did, but I got caught up in this. He never got into trouble when he was younger. He was just a quiet young man. Bang, bang, bang. It's the police. We're arresting you for attempted murder and rape. So we actually kind of started off like friends. We became closer as well. I was just dumbstruck. I couldn't believe they convicted me. And then life sentence as well. What the fuck? Dear Karen, I'm writing you today from the prison in England. The worst situation I could imagine. I don't know if you know yet, so so I'll I'll tell tell you. you. I was found guilty, unbelievable, of the crime of a rape against a woman I've never seen before in my life. That's the voices of Andy Malkinson and Karen Schutmacher, Andy's former girlfriend. The letter they're reading was one Andy sent her from prison after he was convicted of rape in 2004. It was a serious crime because whoever did it beat her badly. I was given a life sentence. Karen, I'm sure you will believe me. I swear I didn't do it. They got the wrong man. You know yourself I could never do such a thing. I might not be the most perfectly wonderful guy, but I do not deserve this. I'm utterly innocent. I shall continue to fight to prove my innocence for as long as it takes. I'd like to hear from you, Karen, to know that we still are friends. With love, love, Andy. You're listening to 17 Years, The Andrew Malkinson Story, a podcast brought to you by The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Emily Dugan, a reporter at The Sunday Times. This is a series about how one man spent almost two decades in jail for a crime he says he didn't commit. Despite trying repeatedly to clear his name, he remains a convicted sex offender. But now we've uncovered new evidence which casts doubt on the verdict and the criminal justice process. In part one of this series, we heard about Andy's early life. A guy from Grimsby who started work on the docks at 16, who had a love of the night sky and also liked to travel, hopping from one casual job to another. How he'd ended up in Holland in the mid-90s, where he met Karen, how they drifted apart as a couple but remained close. How he'd spent some time in a jail in Thailand over a passport offence. But then, at the age of 37, just a few weeks after returning to the UK, he was arrested on suspicion of rape and attempted murder. You can't process it. You can't process it. You're like, what? I'm with Andy in the bed that he's living in following his release from prison last year after spending 17 years in jail. But he's out now. He's on life licence, which means that unless he overturns his conviction, he'll be subject to parole restrictions for the rest of his life. Any change in circumstances, I have to report immediately. From such small thing as uh, changing my bank card, if I want to travel anywhere, I have to seek permission. There's a whole raft of them. If anybody wants to come and stay in my house, everything like that. Today, we'll look back at the case against Andy and reveal that two of the witnesses who were portrayed as honest 
turned out to have long criminal records, and speak to an investigator who believes the police and the justice system have let Andy down. This is part two, the trial. What I'm about to describe is graphic, so if you don't want to hear it, you may want to skip ahead a couple of minutes. In 2003, the UK would invade Iraq. To show at the moment of decision that we have the courage to do the right thing. Tony Blair's Labour government made the case for war in March that year. That same summer, the UK, like the rest of Europe, was experiencing a heatwave. An exceptional summer, but today temperatures soared higher than ever before. In France, almost 15,000 people would die from it. Are expecting the highest ever recorded temperatures in the south of France this Back in the UK on Friday the 18th of July 2003, in Atherton, a small town in Salford in Greater Manchester, a woman had been drinking for several hours. She was at a barbecue with her boyfriend at his parents' house. She and her boyfriend ended up having a row. At about 2.30 on the Saturday morning, she decided to walk home to a place called Kersley, which was roughly six miles away. So she set off. Then just before 4.30am, she texts her boyfriend. She said a man had threatened her, saying, come into the bushes, I have a gun pointed at your head. She carried on walking. Then a man followed her, walking behind her, his shirt flapping open to show his chest. By this point, she was on Clegg's Lane, a long single carriageway road that goes over the M61 motorway. She was a mile or so from home when... She was grabbed from behind, forced to the ground and throttled, the attacker pressing his thumbs into her neck. When she pleaded with him and told him she had two babies, he only pressed harder. She remembered scratching her attacker's face with her left hand before falling unconscious. When she came round, she was bleeding and bruised. Her cheekbone was broken and one eye was too swollen to open. She couldn't remember if she'd been raped, but a medical examination confirmed it and one of her nipples had been partly severed. That night, Andy says he never left home. He says he was asleep on his colleague's sofa, about a mile and a half away from the scene of this horrific crime. These are the basic facts of the case. What I want to understand is, could a miscarriage of justice have taken place? And if, like Andy claims, he's not responsible for the crime, how do you clear your name? And who was responsible? Andy was arrested at his hometown in Grimsby in August 2003. I was completely honest. I answered all the questions. I haven't raped anyone. I haven't attacked anyone. I know I haven't. I said, well, DNA. The first thing you'd think of anyone in that field was DNA. I wasn't there. I know I wasn't. So my DNA's not going to be there. We'll come back to Andy's point about his DNA because it's key to the whole case. But shortly after his arrest, the woman identified Andy as her attacker. And on Monday, the 2nd of February, 2004, his trial began at Manchester Crown Court, charged with two counts of rape and attempted murder. It's actually quite hazy after all this time, but I do remember it. Each day he was escorted to court by police in a van from the prison where he was being held, HMP Strangeways. They drove to the back of the court, put cuffs on me, he coughed all the time, and then walked me down into the cells under the court which were kind of grotty, dark like a dungeon. And then I'm, I come up into the light and there's a very serious crown court situation with the judge in his robes and everything. 
it's surreal. You think, this can't be happening. Andy, who wasn't a wealthy guy and relied on legal aid, asked his lawyer for some smart clothes to wear at trial. But they weren't particularly forthcoming. I went in um, a grey prison sweat top. I think prison jeans. So, yeah, I looked apart. Purely because of the nature of the offence, the atmosphere was intense at times. That's Neil Keeling. He's the chief reporter at the Manchester Evening News. I've worked at the paper since 1987. When this incident occurred, I was the district reporter for Salford. We're sitting in Neil's front garden. He's spent decades reporting in Greater Manchester. He's got short-cropped hair and is a reporter of the old school, dogged and hard-working. Back in February 2004, Neil was covering the trial at Manchester Crown Court. It's quite an impressive building. Sort of white steps outside leading up to it. It looks quite ornate. Inside, it's this huge, massive corridor on the ground floor. The courtroom in which Malkinson stood trial was one of the biggest ones. There was having a big discussion about whether there should be guards immediately behind the witness box when I was giving evidence. I thought, this is over the top. This is really... For fuck's sake, I haven't even done anything, you know. The thing I remember very well is the victim telling the jury that she was, quote, more than 100% certain it was him. I was aware that effectively there was no forensic evidence, but I still thought when she said that, that is really going to resonate with the jury. It was just my gut feeling, because she... She was the one who'd been raped. He's there in the court and she's saying she's more than 100% certain it's him. It's like it's a foregone conclusion. You're completely vulnerable and powerless. There's nothing you can do. On the morning of Monday the 9th of February, after one week, the jury left to deliberate. But they couldn't reach a unanimous decision. In the end, the judge said he'd accept a majority verdict. For a day and a half, Andy sat there and waited. They sent them out and in a few times because they asked questions. The tension builds up all the time. Please just come to a decision. And please don't let it be guilty. Just, just see that it's nonsense. On Tuesday the 10th of February 2004, the jury returned a 10-2 verdict. The first count, the judge said, attempted murder. He said, not guilty. I thought, oh, thank God. And then he said, with the rape, guilty. Your whole world collapses in one instant, and you're like, fucking hell, this can't be happening. It's just, it's hard to put into words. I've done thousands of stories, and there's, most of them, they eventually leave you. But there are a few that stay with you. Neil Keeling was in the press gallery, watching as it all unfolded. When... Malkinson was led from the dock. He looked in my direction. I'll never forget the expression on his face. It, it was a mixture of both pure rage and bewilderment when he was taken out. I was taking it all in and looking around and thinking, you, you people are all out of your fucking minds. Can't nobody see that this is just absolutely off? It's completely nuts. But the reaction of the woman who had been raped was unequivocal. I remember her shouting yes when the verdict for the rape came back and she started to cry. And then after 
the verdict, I think it must have been via the police. The victim gave us a statement in which she said she was, quote, glad that that monster has been locked up. And he was given a life sentence. I just couldn't believe what was happening. From the moment that I was arrested, it seemed to get deeper and deeper and deeper. And I couldn't, I couldn't find a way to prove my innocence. I couldn't find a way to, to demonstrate I was telling the truth. Thinking back to that moment as he was led from the dock in 2004, Andy remembers amongst all this bewilderment, having one single thought, one sole purpose, or mission, if you like, of what lay ahead for him. Now, my future is set. I have one task, and that's to prove my innocence. And I devote it. I really did. I thought, this is, this is my task now. So you're not going to get away with this. Yeah. Yeah. You are not going to get away with this. That is when Andy's fight to clear his name began. And one person who's never doubted Andy was his former girlfriend, Karen. I knew Andy wasn't the one who did his crime. That was just clear for me. You kind of think that things will will be sorted out or, you know, things will be cleared, cleared, because this is absolutely not, not right. If Andy is to clear his name... He's learnt now that it won't be easy. Back in 2004, the key elements of the case against him were that the prosecution said that he somehow manipulated the scene to make sure none of his DNA was there. The victim had testified against him, saying she was certain he was her attacker. This was backed up by two other witnesses who said they'd seen Andy near the crime scene in the early hours that morning. And there's no doubt that Andy had a transient lifestyle, but this meant he was portrayed as a suspicious outsider and there was no one in court to vouch for his character. One accusation levelled at Andy was that he'd tried to leave a false trail to make it look like he'd gone abroad after the rape. The picture that the police painted of Malkinson was that he was an oddball drifter. Neil Keeling got a briefing from officers after Andy was convicted. One piece of information that was very interesting was that he had told his flatmate that he was going back to Holland and he left the flat the police then started to look for him and discovered that he hadn't gone to Holland and they suggested to me that this was evidence potentially of a false trail being set On the 25th of July he decided to leave the area this was six days after the rape took place he was driven to Manchester airport by his flatmate but upon arrival, he says there were no direct flights to Amsterdam. Malkinson's explanation was that he just changed his mind. Instead of going back to Holland, he went to Grimsby, his hometown. I thought it was an international airport. I thought it was open 24-7. And I got there, it was, I think it was after eight. Everything was shut, shut it down. Presumably you didn't have a smartphone. In terms of trying to book a flight or knowing the airport was open, you know, no, what access no did you have to that information? I, I didn't have any access at all. I was pondering what to do. I thought... Well, I, I can get a flight anytime. I'll, I'll go and see my mum. So I went to Grimsby to see my mum because I haven't seen her for a long time. I changed my plans like I always do. You know, I'm, I'm a traveller. After sleeping at the airport, Andy got the train to Grimsby and stayed at the Salvation Army for a couple of nights. He'd quit his job as a security guard in Manchester and soon began collecting unemployment benefits. I signed on and told him my name and where I'm staying. If you're someone running away... You don't disclose where you are, do you? I'm in central London. Clerkenwell, to be specific. 
It's a hot summer's day. There's busy traffic and I'm standing by a tall building with a heavy metallic door. I'm here to meet a man who's poured over this case more than anyone else in the last few years. My name's James Burley and I work on helping lawyers bring cases to the Court of Appeal and to the Criminal Cases Review Commission. James Burley works for Appeal. They're a charity and law practice that investigates potential miscarriages of justice. In 2017, they took on Andy's case after his former girlfriend, Karen, wrote to them. James is one of their investigators. The thought of people who are innocent spending years in prison for crimes they haven't committed, I find it appalling. James is youngish, in his mid to late 20s, with short brown hair, well turned out, in jeans and a smart shirt. His approach is serious and methodical. He's full of smiles until the interview begins, and then his expression shifts to one of earnest concentration. Light floods into the office through large windows, onto a desk covered in discarded coffee cups. And in one corner, something catches my eye. A white box full of files. Written on it in black marker pen, two words. Malkinson. Andrew. One of the really strange things about Andy's case, which has always stood out to me, is how he becomes a suspect. Andy was staying with a family. The family James is referring to are the Hardmans. In part one of this series, we heard Andy say they lent him some money so he could get a flight to the UK after he'd been mugged on holiday. He stayed on their sofa in Salford for around two or three weeks. During that time, he'd found work as a security guard at a shopping centre nearby. One day... He was out with the son of that family. This is about a month before the attack. And they got stopped by police, like a routine sort of traffic stop. Two of the officers who were present, they checked Andy on the police national computer, talked with him for a bit and then sent him on his way. Ever since he was convicted, Andy has always been suspicious the Hardmans were somehow involved in him ending up in jail. From my position in prison, looking back, it looked orchestrated. But then I don't know whether that's that's paranoia setting in or what but I still don't have a definitive answer to that. In one sense it's not surprising Andy feels this way. For him after he met the Hardmans everything went wrong. I certainly want to speak to the Hardmans and get their point of view in a future episode but back to these two police officers who stopped Andy that day. It turns out they were the same two officers who were first on the scene after the victim had been raped Apparently, upon hearing the description, they simultaneously said, that reminds us of Andy Malcolmson, who we stopped a month ago. It almost seems like on their own accord, they went and made their own inquiries and saw Andy the next day at his workplace. It was pretty common for police officers to drop in on security staff. So when they spoke to Andy, it just felt routine. They'd usually wanted to see the manager to talk about shoplifting, that kind of thing. They said nothing about any attacks or me being a suspect or anything. They didn't act like they were observing me or anything. But apparently, they were observing Andy. And this makes the next part of this whole interaction very odd. In the victim's account of the attack, she said she'd lashed out and scratched her attacker on his face, causing a deep scratch. Surely, just one day later, the officers would have seen Andy didn't have any markings on his face. They saw he didn't have a scratch, and I don't really understand why it didn't end there. But it didn't end at all quite the opposite. Hi, I'm John Witherow, editor of The Times. 
Thanks to you, we get to cover the broadest and most important daily news stories. To enjoy more remarkable stories every day, subscribe to The Times and The Sunday Times and get one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Those two officers attended the scene uh, of the rape. James Burley, the investigator at the legal charity Appeal, is telling me about how Andy became the prime suspect in the case. Even though in the course of the police investigation, lots of names were put forward, including people with criminal records for these kind of offences, it feels like the police investigation really focused on Andy. But let's try to figure out what happened at the trial that led to the jury deciding there was enough evidence to convict Andy beyond all reasonable doubt. Firstly... Whenever someone is accused of a crime of this magnitude, the natural question to ask is, are they capable of such an offence? Andy had nothing in his background to suggest that he would do something like this. He didn't have any previous convictions for violence or sex offences. He had a minor conviction for criminal damage when he was a teenager and a conviction for a passport offence. At the trial, Andy wanted his former girlfriend Karen, who lived in Holland, to be his character witness. But this didn't happen. I suppose the reality is, is that in a legal aid case, the expense of bringing over a character witness from a different country, it just wasn't done. Remember, Andy got casual work here and there. That was his lifestyle. He wasn't going to be able to fund a top barrister, so he relied on legal aid. However, I've spoken to Karen, who said he wasn't capable of such a crime. And I asked her, how could she be so sure? Because I know Andy. I, I believed him as well, you know. I, he was honest. He had been... Uh... Nice to people, respectful to women. The crime didn't fit Andy at all. Did Andy ever have a temper? Was he ever violent in your memory? No, no, no. I think when he was angry or upset with something, he was more like putting his reggae music on and uh, singing protest songs or something like that. Back in the dock in 2004, Andy never got Karen as his character witness. But there were two people in court who acted effectively as character witnesses for the prosecution against him. It was John and Deborah Hardman. They were trying to paint me as some kind of deviant. I said, I was wearing women's underwear. I never wear women's underwear. What the fuck? Um, that I was crashing into their um, bedroom. That's not true. They gave an account of Andy from the short time they knew him on holiday and the two to three weeks he spent living with them. 
Remember, he'd been staying with the Hardmans, but then they had a falling out, and he moved to a colleague's house. The Hardmans were being assholes. They were bogging me at work and making threats of physical violence. We learnt in part one that this was over a dispute about money, and he called the police to complain six days after the rape had occurred. In retrospect, if I was some kind of nutcase rapist who tries to kill women, it doesn't make sense to me that I would call the police. It doesn't add up. During the trial, the judge made clear to the jury both John and Deborah Hardman had previous criminal convictions. The family was known to the police and had a reputation in the local area. Something Andy soon found out at his workplace. The boss, he said, oh, where are you staying, by the way? And I told him the name, and he went, oh, fucking... He said, oh, oh everybody, he's staying with the Hardmans, like everybody knew them. You know, they're, they're proper local dodgepots, not the sort of people I, I, I want to associate with. At one point during the trial, the Hardmans said they'd seen Andy reading a book on how to kill. It was, in fact, an SAS survival guide. In June 2004, four months after the trial and his conviction, an article appeared in Take a Break, a magazine known for its true-life confessions. Under the headline, Hi, I'm your holiday psycho, Deborah Hardman shared her story about Andy. Here's an extract, read here by someone else. Andrew was good fun. He travelled all over Europe and made us laugh with his tales. There was just one problem. Every night I'd hear his footsteps. He'd be creeping down the stairs. I've always been a sleepwalker, he said. But as the days passed, it got worse. Soon he was waking the kids as he moved around at night and they'd be too tired for school. One night I heard the familiar sound of someone on the landing. Then, very slowly, our bedroom door eased open. I saw Andrew standing there in his underwear. I stared in alarm. He walked into our room, pulled back the quilt and tried to get in beside us. Andrew, this isn't your room, I shouted. John sat bolt upright. Andrew suddenly seemed to wake up. Sorry, he murmured. Uh, I was sleepwalking. We all went back to bed, but that night I barely shut my eyes. Part of me didn't believe him. Andy says he has no idea where that anecdote came from, and it's safe to say he's never been happy with the way the Hardmans portrayed him. I thought... I thought they were involved. I must stress, Andy isn't saying they were involved in the rape but believes they helped in some way to get him convicted. And if that were true, it's hard to know exactly what their motivation may have been. That's one of the things I want to ask them. But right now, I only have Andy's version of events. So why were police relying on witnesses with known criminal backgrounds? Well, part of the reason may have been there was no DNA connecting Andy to the crime scene. So the prosecution's case was weak and relied on witness testimony. In terms of forensic evidence, police managed to recover traces of DNA which were found on the victim's clothing and body. Nothing matched Andy's. But in an attack as violent as I described at the beginning of this episode, is it even possible none of Andy's DNA would be left behind? It seems almost inconceivable that if Andy was the attacker that there'd be none of his DNA on her. And yet there's never been any of Andy's DNA found. What the prosecution said at trial was that her attacker was forensically aware. The prosecution argued Andy had used a condom to avoid bodily contact and that he'd manipulated the scene somehow to cleverly leave none of his DNA. The idea of being so-called forensically aware. It's an impossible situation. It's a trap. You were forensically aware. 
what does that mean? You can accuse anyone of anything. Where's the evidence? Well, you've, you've got rid of it, haven't you? Forensic aware. I think most people can see that that's just not really a scientific concept. James has spent over a thousand hours looking at Andy's case. It's worth me saying at this point, he's not the first person to question what happened. In 2016, investigative journalist Bob Whiffenden published a book looking at various potential miscarriages of justice. One of the chapters was about Andy, and Bob even called it forensically aware, a reference to the prosecution's argument, which he concluded was flawed. Sadly, Bob died in 2018, so he's no longer here to tell us more about what he found out. In court, the judge recognised this situation around the lack of any of Andy's DNA wasn't ideal. Here's a section of the judge, Michael Henschel, summing up. It's been read by someone else. This is not a case where the identification evidence is supported, for example, by forensic evidence, because in this case, there is no such evidence. So in 2017, when Andy had been in jail for 13 years, James got to work on his client's case, trying to figure out if there might be a miscarriage of justice, with witness evidence at the front of his mind. One of the first things he did was approach Greater Manchester Police, asking to see documents related to the conviction. Initially, the force said no, but after a legal challenge, they gave in. I got a call from the police force's solicitor, and he said... Listen, we're looking at disclosing the material. A start, but... One of the same things he said in that phone call was that material had been weeded on two occasions. I don't don't know why they're using that term. It's a euphemism for destroying evidence. The law is absolutely clear on the need to retain all materials relating to a case which has resulted in a conviction for at least as long as a person's still in prison. And Andy was still in prison on those occasions. Someone in the police force weeded Andy's case files in 2011 and again in 2013. This included disposing of the victim's bra, knickers and top. Greater Manchester Police have since suggested to Andy's lawyers it would not have been unusual for exhibits to be destroyed after a conviction was secured. When he finally got the green light from the police's solicitor, James made the trip up to Manchester. He didn't know at the time, but within the hundreds of documents he was given access to, there was a single piece of information that would jump out at him. We'll come back to this later. It wasn't only the woman who'd been raped that identified Andy as the attacker. There were also two other witnesses in the court whose testimony was crucial. A couple who said they saw Andy twice that night. This isn't a case where they witnessed the attack. They say they witnessed the attacker before the attack uh, on two occasions. Both sightings lasted mere seconds. What they said is that in the early hours of that day, for reasons which really aren't very clear, they went out for a drive. And initially it was to search for a woman who'd supposedly been shouting outside the house. Let's just pause a moment. This couple say they heard a woman making a disturbance outside their home. To be clear, they're not talking about the victim, but another woman entirely. Then, in the early hours, they say they went for a drive to find her, but didn't. In that car journey, they claim to have made two sightings of an individual. They have no particular reason to remember what this individual looks like. And yet what they said to the jury was, we are absolutely sure that it was Andy. And is there anyone to corroborate that they really were out that night? Because as a couple, 
presumably they are each other's vouchsafe that that's where they were. Well, there was no CCTV evidence presented that they were driving. No, there were, there were no other witnesses to corroborate that. At the trial, the prosecution said these witnesses were honest. Here's what the judge said in his summing up. If you decide that those witnesses are honest, then you have here three honest witnesses of whom it is alleged they have all made the same mistake. And if you decide that, you may think, and it is a matter for you, that it is common sense that three honest witnesses do not all tend to make the same mistake. I was going through the documents and I came across one which immediately I realised was quite significant. It was just a single line about one of the witnesses. In 2019, while Andy was still in jail, James found himself at his desk late one night. These witnesses were presented as being honest. This document I came across suggested that, at least with regards to one of the witnesses, that probably wasn't the case. I've seen court submissions that confirm not just one, but both of these witnesses had a criminal past. The couple had 16 convictions for 38 offences between them, including for dishonesty. But the jury, and almost everyone in court in 2004, were completely unaware of this. Greater Manchester Police have conceded in writing that this information should have been disclosed. The other thing that's really appalling in this case is that we know that Andy's defence representative specifically requested this information. Despite trying, we haven't been able to contact the witnesses to put these points to them, so we're not naming them. My defence lawyer gave them a good going over, you know, what, why was you out, you know, and all that stuff. But they seemed well prepared for it. They had an answer for everything. I thought, this, 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 they've got to be lying. At one point, the male witness pointed to Andy in the dock in what sounds like a moment of American courtroom TV drama, and said, that's him. The judge reminded the jury that this was not admissible and should be ignored. What that whole moment makes me wonder is, if you're going to go to the length of almost making a fool out of yourself in court and pointing to the man in the dock and saying it was him, there could be some kind of motivation there. And that feels almost like maybe he knew how important he was in the prosecution's case. James also discovered this couple only came forward as witnesses just hours after police began contacting their sources for help. Another part of the prosecution's case that I think needs looking at is the evidence around the scratch. We heard earlier how the woman who'd been raped said she lashed out and scratched her attacker on the face during the ordeal. In her testimony, she said she used her left hand, but... One of the things the judge said to the jury was if you think that she did scratch her attacker, then it can't have been Andy because he had no trace of any injury of that sort. Here's part of what the judge said. The victim told you that at some stage she managed to get her hand free and she believed, undoubtedly believed, that she scratched his face on the right-hand side from the cheek to the tip of the jaw. The defence emphasised that the defendant had no trace of any such injury. Did she succeed in scratching his face in the way that she clearly believed she did? In the aftermath, There was some confusion in court over which hand she'd used to scratch her attacker, which led the judge to then question the victim's memory. What the judge said was she said she believed she'd scratched him and sort of put in that seed of doubt in the jury's mind about whether she actually had. It's hard to stress how important this may have been in the jury's deliberations. Remember... When police went to see Andy the day after the attack, there were no marks on his face. However, if the jury believed the victim may have misremembered this point, then they could conclude the attacker was Andy. So where are we? 
and he's now out of prison. He's always maintained his innocence. He served 17 years for a crime he says he didn't commit. He could have got out sooner if he'd told the parole board he was the attacker, but chose not to and stayed in jail. We've pulled out the key parts of the police investigation and what I believe is some of the most unusual and worrying things about this trial. But there were other things that I haven't had time to go into. For example, it turns out Andy wasn't the only suspect. In court, the judge acknowledged that during the investigation, Greater Manchester Police failed to follow up on some suspects who had records far more worrying than Andy's, like convictions for sex attacks. It's not clear why this wasn't done. This is one of many specific points I put to the police in writing, but they say they can't respond at this time, and we'll come to the reasons later in the series. There was also a witness who was supposed to have seen the attacker at the scene. Police told local reporters he was crucial to the case, but he never appeared in court. After Andy's arrest, the female witness, who we now know had multiple criminal convictions, and the victim were driven to the identity parade together. This is a clear breach of guidelines designed to stop witnesses conferring. Not only this, but it took place at one in the morning. This has never been explained by the police. And finally, when it came to the identification of Andy, the victim described her attacker as about five foot eight. Andy's five foot eleven. At some point during the attack, the man's shirt came off altogether, and the woman said he had no chest hair and made no mention of any tattoos. And he had chest hair and prominent tattoos down the length of his forearms. It was completely bewildering. I mean, the description and the, the scratch evidence and everything else, none of it matched me. We've approached Greater Manchester Police for an interview, but so far they've declined. Andy's whole trial hung on witness testimony. As James Burley from the legal charity Appeal says, A big issue in this case is that I don't think it was fully explained to the jury just how cautious they need to be when it comes to people's memories and recollections. Just because someone professes a lot of confidence in their identification, that doesn't necessarily make it true. So if the identification was wrong, how could that have happened? Once you start corrupting and contaminating memory, it's contaminated. It's now become a new memory, sometimes a false memory. Next time on 17 Years, the Andrew Malkinson story. I was able to fight my way through it and survive it. I speak to a woman from a completely different case about how her memory and witness identification led to the imprisonment of an innocent man. After the identification of the photographic lineup, I'm absolutely positive that I got it right. You're suddenly so much more on your own. And I go to the scene of the crime. She was found kind of crawling up this embankment, completely bleeding, battered, in a terrible state. You've been listening to part two of 17 Years, The Andrew Malkinson Story, with me, Emily Dugan. It's brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. The series is written by me and Will Rowe. It's produced by Will Rowe, with assistance from Brenna Dardolf. The executive producers are Poppy Damon and Lynn Jones, with original music and sound design by Tom Birchall. If you've been affected by any issues in this podcast, there are some helplines and websites you can access. Just go to the notes in the podcast description. And if you have any information that you want to share on Andy's case, or remember anything from the time, 
you can contact me directly. My details are also in the description notes. 